Well, sadly, this morning's sermon recording didn't take, and so this is a re-recording. You will have to just accept on faith that everyone laughed at all my sermon jokes. My name is Amy, and I am the rector here at Incarnation. And saying that phrase stirs up a million feelings, mostly grief right now, but also anticipation and hope and wonder at what God will do among us. And also, it's just weird. We all love Liz, and Liz is a force and a presence in the room, and she's not here, and we really miss her. And so things are just going to feel kind of weird for a while. And we will keep worshiping and keep welcoming and keep wondering in the midst of the weirdness, and we will be okay. Well, today's gospel reading from John actually speaks from kind of a similar situation. Jesus and his disciples have just finished the Passover meal together. What we, who are now on the other side of this story, call the Last Supper, because we know that this is actually their last meal together. We know that Jesus is going to be crucified not long after this. And so Judas, who plans to betray Jesus to the Roman authorities, he has left the room. He's gone to get them to come back and arrest him. And that's where today's story picks up. And today's passage kicks off what is sometimes called the farewell discourse in John's gospel. Jesus is saying goodbye. As they sit around the table after their meal, Jesus starts talking, and for four straight chapters, he talks to them. But this isn't a leisurely sort of lingering over conversation after dinner. There's a sense of urgency here. In verse 33, Jesus says, I'm with you only a little longer, and where I'm going, you can't come. The time is short. Judas has already gone out. He'll be back soon. The night is closing in. And so Jesus is going to tell them quickly what they will need after he's gone. And we know a little bit what that's like. Because if you were here last week, then you heard our own farewell discourse from Liz, our outgoing rector in her final sermon to us as a congregation. It's as if Liz were telling us, I am going away and this is my last chance to tell you what I really want you to hear, what I really want you to get for after I'm gone. And so Liz charged us to think deeply about what we believe, to wrestle with scriptures, to not be afraid of questions, To not be afraid of people who ask questions, people who don't look like us, who might be hurting or lost or bruised. She told us that our job is to shift and to welcome and to make space for those people because nobody is too other for incarnation, because nobody is too other for Jesus. And so we know what it's like to receive a farewell discourse from a beloved pastor and teacher and friend. And Liz isn't Jesus and she would be the first to tell you that, but still, 
we can imagine the scene in this week's text in a unique way. And so we can bring whatever we are feeling, whatever weirdness, whatever grief, whatever worries, whatever we're carrying this morning as we come into the text this morning. So, Jesus kicks off his farewell discourse with two messages. Glory is coming and love one another. And he starts off with that message of glory. Verse 31 and 32 says, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Glorify, 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 glorify. He says it so many times. And the language that Jesus is using here of the Son of Man, it comes from the prophet Daniel, where Daniel had this vision of this unveiling of God's glory in someone like a Son of Man. In other words, like a person. And Jesus is saying, I'm that person. I'm the Son of Man that Daniel prophesied about my glory. And our reading that we just heard from Revelation is another vision of this unveiling of glory. Jesus is telling his disciple that his mission is coming to its fulfillment. The glory is coming in him. And we know what the disciples do not yet know. We know that this glory is not going to be revealed through some display of force. It's not going to come in military strength or political power. The glory of God is coming in what is lowly and despised. It's coming in the humiliation and crucifixion of Jesus. When the disciples see Jesus crucified, they will be tempted to think that all of this was for nothing. And so in his farewell discourse, Jesus is telling them what they will need to make sense of it all. Glory is coming. The triumph of God is coming. The powers of this world are about to be unseated by Jesus's act of self-giving love on the cross. And now we come to that self-giving love in this discourse. Reading verses 34 and 35, he says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. Now, right off the bat, we should ask a new commandment? Because love one another is a very, very old commandment. We actually heard it read in our Old Testament reading from Leviticus 19 just a few minutes ago. That passage in Leviticus was a set of laws given by God to Moses, telling God's people how they should live. And the reading ended with these words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that Leviticus passage is actually a great place to understand what it means to love one another, what it means to love your neighbor as ourself, as yourself, what Jesus and his disciples would have understood by a commandment to love. 
And Leviticus depicts love in these really specific, really practical ways. Don't reap all the way to the edges of your field. Don't strip your vineyards bare. Don't gather every fallen grape off of the ground. Even though all of that stuff is yours and you have every right to it, don't squeeze every last bit of profit out of your fields. In other words, leave room at the edges of your fields, of your money, of your life, so that you can welcome more people into the abundance that you have, so that you can give to the poor and to the outsider. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And Leviticus goes on, don't cheat each other, pay your workers, don't tell lies about each other, don't steal from one another, respect people with disabilities, deaf and blind people, make a way for them to live in your midst with dignity. Don't show preference to those who are rich and influential, but treat everyone the same. And if someone you see is at risk of harm or abuse or danger, don't turn a blind eye, but defend and protect them. Don't slander, don't hate, don't hold grudges, don't seek revenge. All of this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just to have vaguely nice feelings and to always be polite, but it's to practically and sacrificially and extravagantly structure your whole life for the good of other people. The whole Old Testament ethic builds on this kind of love, and that's why Jesus' words should catch our attention in John. Because clearly, love one another isn't a new commandment. It's old and familiar, and it's woven into the whole texture of the Hebrew scriptures. What is new is the other part of Jesus' statement just as I have loved you. What's new is not the command to love, but the living, breathing example of love in the person of Jesus. Jesus is what brings new life to this old commandment to love. That neighbor love from Leviticus, a love so rich and so detailed and so full of justice and mercy, that love is now in their midst. Well, on Thursday morning this week, Nancy Sung, who's one of our wardens here, sent out a message on the church WhatsApp group chat. Now, side note, if you didn't know, we have a church WhatsApp group chat and you would like to be on it, and you have a high tolerance for notifications occasionally blowing up your phone, just let me know. I'm happy to add you. But Nancy's message said this. For the science nerds in the crowd, a major astronomical discovery is being announced now. And then there was a link to a live stream. So my son and I listened to that live stream on the way to school, and we heard scientists unveil the first image of a black hole right in the center of our own Milky Way galaxy. 
And I was so struck by the way the lead scientist talked about this project, which she called the first direct image of the gentle giant in the center of our galaxy. And she also said, I met this black hole 20 years ago and I have loved it and tried to understand it ever since. And if you'll stay with me for just a moment, this kind of reminded me of Leviticus. It reminded me of how Jesus's disciples would have known that Levitical law of neighbor love all their lives. They'd have memorized it and recited it and heard it read and preached. They would have sung it in the words of the Psalms. They would have studied it, tried to understand it. But this kind of love that Leviticus and the whole Old Testament described, it must have seemed light years away. But now, now, This love that they had heard and longed for and tried to understand all their lives, now they have a picture of it. And it's not just a blurry composite image like the black hole image. It is a living, breathing person. It's that gentle giant in the center of our universe. Jesus Christ, love incarnate, right here in their midst. And Jesus is calling them. You could even say he is gravitationally pulling them into that same massive love. And then Jesus says this, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Are there any more shameful words spoken by Jesus? Are there any words that we and his followers throughout the centuries have lived up to less than these? We have utterly failed to love one another in the way that Jesus loved us. We have utterly failed to love with that other-oriented, self-giving, extravagantly merciful neighbor love that Leviticus called God's people to, that Jesus himself embodied. And yet we are not without hope. I've said a few times already this morning that we are on the other side of this farewell discourse. We know things the disciples didn't know. We know that Jesus' love took him all the way to the cross, where he overturned and forgave and outloved all of our shameful failures to love. Jesus loved his disciples to the end, and he loves us too. So here we find ourselves on this side of the story, this side of Jesus's farewell discourse, charged with this mission of loving each other, of that love being the way we witness and work in the world. We will get it wrong. 
I will get it wrong. And even when we get it right, this work of love is going to feel small and insignificant and weak against a world with so much hatred, so much violence. And yet Jesus has reminded us that glory is coming. God's glory will be revealed in what is small and insignificant and weak and lowly. And all that is wrong in this world will be undone by the self-giving, extravagant love of Jesus. And we, who have been pulled into this love, we are now sent out to bear that love in the world. And so in my sort of hello discourse, as your new rector, I can't think of any better charge to our church than what Jesus tells us here. So I'll just close by simply reading those words to us again. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen.